welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode 74, number 74. So here we are. Uh, forgive my voice. I'm a little bit, uh, uh, got a little bit of the allergy thing going today. So if I sound a little different, well, then that's what it is. But I do have a, a bottle of water here. So occasionally I'll take a break and take a sip. So the first thing I'd like to cover is, uh, hey, that couple in St. Louis, I believe it's Mark and Patricia McCloskey or something like that, haven't followed the details of it so far because, you know, the details of their personal life because, frankly, that's none of my business. But in case you haven't heard of what went on, uh, they live in probably what is a, a fairly upscale neighborhood in St. Louis, the same neighborhood I guess the mayor lives in. And, of course, a bunch of the anarchist terrorists uh, basically crashed down the gate using the protest of one thing or another as a, um, as a cover. And, of course, they're going to come in and, and they're going to try to intimidate the whole neighborhood. And uh, this couple came out and the man had an AR-15, AR-15A2, nice choice. And his wife had what looked like a PPK to me. Uh, Walter PPK, and they basically were out there, and they they had their guns pointed at the protesters. Not individuals, but kind of as the group, ready to be charged or attacked, because they'd been threatened. People threatened them. And if you look at their home in the background, I mean, it's so nice. It looked like a government building to me. I thought, hey, are they protecting a government building? But it's actually their home, so I'm sure this guy's very well-to-do. And he has a home that he, that he obviously treasures. Um, you know, face it, my home could probably fit in his garage, but I treasure my home too. Now, normally this would have been, you know, a relatively kind of routine thing. You would have expected someone to do that if their home is under threat, if they're under threat, if these, these type of people are in your neighborhood and, and, for all you know, bent on destruction. But, of course, the city attorney who's this you know, kind of clipped-haired, ass-faced-looking woman. You know, she's going to investigate them because they did all that. You know, that's a bunch of nonsense. This is what I'm talking about. The mob, the terrorist, anarchist mob, you're at their, you, you are going to be at their mercy, which they don't have much of. If you don't have a Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms... Obviously, the police departments are not going to protect us. They're not going to stop these people. They, they, they've got this hands-off thing, and they let them march, and they let them rip down statues and, and uh, essentially spray graffiti all over stuff. They allow them to do all that. Um, they'll also allow them to go trash your house, and then everybody will be sorry afterwards. You know, if you want your house to look like the Wendy's that that guy was uh, shot at um, a few weeks ago, Hey, that's what it's going to be because nobody will stop them. Only you can stop them. And, you know, you're not going to do it with a bolt-action hunting rifle. You're not going to do it with a, with a, as Joe Biden would say, get a shotgun. You're not going to do it with a double-barrel shotgun. The weapon he had, the controversial AR-15, is the only weapon that would have been useful to him in that situation. In fact, I think he ought to go trade the PPK in for another one for his spouse. But that's another, that's another uh, thing to talk about. No, it required a show of force. He showed it. He and his wife showed it. She didn't cower in the house. They were out there in front of something that obviously meant a lot to them, their home. And they were prepared to defend it. And I tell you what, I think they're heroes. I think these people deserve medals, to tell you the truth. Because... You know, if we call these these anarchists, these terrorists, if we call their bluff, they will back down. But nobody is willing to do that, except this couple in uh, um, St. Louis. And had he not had a gun like that, what if he'd had a, a Mini-14 with a five-round magazine? Well, I don't think he would have been nearly as, as potentially effective. I mean, you have to have a weapon that has a 30-round magazine and is capable of aimed and accurate and quick fire. You have to have that if you're going to keep this these crowds at bay. 
And so he had exactly what he needed. So that gives you a little insight into the what I've talked about before, the, the Democratic Party liberal anarchist agenda, the, the axis. Talk about an axis of evil. Well, there it is. The Biden, Schumer, Feinstein, Black Lives Matter, uh, Antifa axis. Uh, their end state is that you're disarmed and you're at the mercy of their mob. And that's that way they can uh, get whatever kind of retribution or serve whatever kind of justice, quote unquote, that they feel that you deserve from them. And face it, the police won't be around. Nobody will be around. But um, before it gets to that, we need to basically uh, stand up and be counted in the November election. And before then, you know, if you've got a few extra shekels lying around, uh, giving it to, you know, the Second Amendment supporting candidates of your choice is probably a really good idea. The only disappointing part in this is some of the gun content creators or commentators, um, people on social media, you know, the, the pro-gun people on social media, they were making fun of the guy's clothes. They were making fun of his wife's stance and the fact that, ooh, she had her finger on the trigger and they need training and all the rest of this, you know, nonsense. You know, and those guys can just, they need to get lost. They, you know, if they were commenting on stuff like that, they're losers. Because out there with the adrenaline pumping and going, people aren't going to basically abide by all the gamer rules that we have for uh, safe gun handling. That's just the way it goes. I mean, most of those rules have come by through the sport of gaming. So those guys need to get real and understand that we may be seeing a lot more of this type of stuff in the future. This may be the way of the summer. I hope not. I, I think actually that it's really just going to kind of peter out. I think the strategy clearly is, hey, let this thing run its course and by July or by August, it's over with and people are on to other things. That's kind of how our society works. It's something's big for a while, then it just kind of fades into the background when people are tired of it. And people are starting to get tired of this. Just like they are the coronavirus madness. You know, when this all started, nobody said anything that we'd have to wear masks forever until... Some scientist is convinced that the COVID-19 flu strain dies out. Nobody ever said that. Nobody expressed that. It was that we needed to basically shut things down so that we didn't have a pandemic which overwhelmed our medical system. But nobody said that there was going to be some sort of magical guarantee with your magical face mask that you'll never catch COVID and that, you know, you can't do anything, you can't meet with anybody, you can't have anything because of this fear. And I mean, they've sown this fear into everyone. Uh, even to the point of some groups I'm a member of, they won't hold meetings. They won't hold meetings. Uh, even small meetings, they won't do it. Uh, they've, they've now got a, a law, you know, another, another uh, fiat law that's not real law saying, well, you've got to wear a face mask in public everywhere. And I'm like, forget you, forget you. This is... That the most unconstitutional piece of garbage that, that I can think of. First of all, a mask will not prevent you from getting it. Everybody should know that, but they don't. Unless you're wearing the N95 respirator, and you have one of the ones that was not made in China. So there's probably 10% of them that are good, and the rest of those M95s are probably junk. So if you have an N M95 mask, you're probably okay. But for the rest of us that wear those dopey little cloth masks... That's just designed that if you have COVID and you sneeze, the droplets won't go as far as they normally would. That's all it does. So it's more, it's more COVID theater than it is a really useful prevention tool. Uh, we also found out it doesn't live on surfaces the way they thought it would. And, you know, but there are parts of the country where, yeah, a lot of, they're, they're finding a lot of these cases, but guess what? hospitalizations are not really changing and the death rate is not really changing. It really affects the most vulnerable and they're the ones we should be focusing the efforts on to protect. And that is 
old people and people with the high risk factors, they're the ones who are the most susceptible and the most at risk, and they're the ones that should be protected. Doing all this other stuff to everybody else is just power mongering, and uh, they can't get enough of it. Our politicians, especially Democrats, cannot get enough of it. So all the groups that have set up this uh, CHOP or CHAZ or whatever they call the thing, they can't even name it. They don't even know what it is. Uh, you know, but they established this nine square block or whatever it is, area in Washington, uh, in Seattle, Washington. And I think it encompasses a really large park, too. So it's not like it's, it's all buildings and businesses. It's actually a comparatively small area. But the people who've set that up, you know, they can't even, they can't even, they want to remold the country into the utopian image that they have. And they can't even run this chop. They can't even run this thing. I mean, it's lawless. <clears throat> if you look at the pictures of it, it's filthy. They've had several killings in it, and even even more shootings, and God only knows how many violent assaults have taken place in this thing. I mean, nobody knows. Nobody really knows. And, um, you know, these are the people who are going to remold society. I mean, they can't even run nine square blocks. But what they have done, they've effectively imported a piece of the worst part of Chicago and have recreated it. They've cloned it in downtown Seattle. And you know, this, this shows you when you have these weak politicians, these weak chiefs of police, you know how many chiefs of police, especially from the large cities, have been out there kneeling with the protesters and all this. You know, these guys are weak. They're not, they're not sticking up for us. They're sticking up for their own interests. And they're sticking up for pe some people who really don't deserve it. You know, it's it's a re isn't it amazing that nobody talks about George Floyd anymore? I mean, nobody. This has gone so far beyond the original thing that started it, the original event that started it, that it's it's completely out of hand, and it is now a Marxist, Leninist, anarchist revolution. That's what they are. That's what it is, and. Um, you know, the strategy that it's just going to run its course and then be okay, everybody kind of goes back to normal, I think is a very dangerous strategy. And I think sometimes you have to meet force with force and uh, overwhelm them and teach them a lesson. But it's absolutely crazy how, you know, the lawlessness now is pervasive in all the large cities where the police departments under the threat of being defunded and everything else, they're, be, they're pulling back in. And so now you have murders basically doubling in a lot of the large cities. I guess, you know, it, and, and you don't hear Black Lives Matter talk about that. You don't hear these protesters talking about that. I think all the people who were killed in this chop zone were black people. And you don't hear them protesting and getting upset about that. So... And, and, you know, this kind of violence is probably a thousand times greater than the police on black violence. So that's where we are. Uh, it's a very disappointing place to be between COVID, riots, and everything else. Um, <laughs> this, all these things are being spun to try to adversely impact your life. And it is not a good deal. It is not a good deal at all. Uh, so we can now get to something that's infinitely better and more enjoyable, which is the questions and answers. So we'll start off with a submission from our regular listener, Clown Bear. And he said, What are the top five insignificant firearms, meaning firearms that did not advance firearms technology? Yes, yeah, so I kind of interpreted this to mean firearms that were successful and in widespread use, but did not really proliferate anything. So, in no particular order, I came up with five choices. The first choice is the M14 rifle, 
actually one of my favorite rifles, but it makes this list for the following reasons. The reasons the M14 is on the list is, it's really very simple. It was the last gasp, if you will, of the Garand system. Garand system was very successful, but it came out, it was really kind of thought of in the early part of the 20th century, the first, you know, 1925, 1930, 1936, first third of the 20th century, and uh, really by about 30 years later, it was, it was done. I mean, it was just done, just overcome by other systems, replaced by other systems. Not meaning that it's not good. The M14 was, in many ways, excellent. Unfortunately, the conditions of the battlefield had changed such that the grand system uh, was just not going to be what it was in the past. Uh, it was just not going to be as effective due to the changing conditions of the battlefield. So, uh, the M14 was successful. It was adopted. It was produced in large quantities. It was used for, you know, really less than 10 years. However, it, uh, you know, lived on as a sniper rifle, and it's lived on as a few other things. And uh, it, is a, it is generally very, very excellent. Generally very, very excellent. But it did not spawn any further development. But you say, hey, what about the uh, Mini-14 and Mini-30? And the answer is they're kind of... Uh, you could call them a, a development, but numbers-wise, their impact is pretty small. And the other thing is, they're really more M1 carbine gas system than M1 Garand gas system. A bolt looks pretty similar and works pretty much the same way, but, you know, the fact of the matter is it's a slightly different system, so it's not really a proliferation of the M14. So... Uh, the 14, a great gun, and you know, the BM-59 suffered the same fate. It was kind of even a much smaller scale adaptation of the Garand to the 7.62 NATO cartridge. But, you know, it didn't see a lot of widespread use. The economy they thought they would get from these would be tra saving training time for troops that were already trained in the Garand system, and also that they could use a lot of existing parts, and, you know, none of that really came to fruition, so... You know, the M14 is on the list. Okay, in no particular order, the next one on the list is the Lamat Revolver. And if you remember, it's a Civil War era percussion cap and ball type revolver. God, I think it has eight or nine chambers. And then it has in the middle of the thing like a, a little shotgun barrel that, that you could load. And this this was all kind of muzzle-loading cap and ball. No, no cartridges. Although there was a cartridge conversion in the um, HBO thing Westworld. One of the characters had a cartridge conversion, Lamat Revolver. But the Lamat Revolver, uh, while it was a good idea, had a lot of good firepower, was really awkward, very hard to use, and, and really a very kind of troublesome and tricky, tricky mechanism. Uh, even the modern reproductions you know, suffer from a lot of foibles. I know one guy who basically said that when you're a Lamat owner, the happiest day of your life is the uh, day you buy your Lamat, and the next happy day is the day you sell it, because they are very frustrating to deal with and take a lot of expertise and a lot of TLC to kind of keep them going. They're not like, you know, the reproduction Colt and Remington cap and ball revolvers, which are, which are really quite good, which are really quite good these days. So the Lamat revolver just—it uh, was just an idea. It was—it was used quite a bit, but once cap and ball revolvers were done, uh, I would say about 1865, it, it just—it vanished. So it is on the list, significant but insignificant as far as uh, advancing firearms technology. Same thing with the next thing, in no particular order, the Pedersen device. Uh, Pedersen device was pretty ingenious, and it was actually, and I may, I may be wrong, but I don't think so. I think it was the only conversion to semi-automatic of a manually operated rifle that was officially adopted. 
I, you know, all the other ones were just these terrible contraptions that were uh, essentially done in the original caliber. So, you know, if you've ever seen, they, they, they have some good ones on Forgotten Weapons and a few other ones where you see these, they fit a gas piston to the outside of a Lee Enfield. It's got all these rods and levers that, that will operate the bolt. Completely impractical. Completely but they do work, at least in a prototype environment, well enough so that people would look at them and say, a semi-automatic rifle is possible, and it might be possible to convert a bolt gun, but on further examination, really it doesn't. So I would say that, uh, that essentially, you know, the Pedersen device was actually adopted, so it was significant. We actually modified the Springfield rifle to use them, and those Springfield rifles stayed in service as long as the Springfield did. It was the Mark I, never using the Pedersen device, but as a rifle, it was it was used. And then finally, in the 1930s, these things were, with the advent of submachine guns and, and a few other things, uh, it was clear that the Pedersen device was not going to be very useful, so most of them were destroyed. So, the Pedersen device, significant yet insignificant. Okay, the next one, this will raise a few hackles. But I think the Bren 10, you know, the, the Jeff Cooper's Bren 10, which was essentially a, an unlicensed copy of a CZ-75 that had been enlarged to this, you know, kind of, 10 millimeter cartridge which was really on the border of being a magnum pistol cartridge the pistol was pretty ponderous the cartridge was very powerful and the gun had some recoil now it's an excellent firearm the reason it didn't catch on was i think several reasons number one is like every startup company they had problems with production and problems they were actually at one point shipping pistols without the magazines yeah, imagine, imagine what a fun day that is. You plunk down a lot of money. And these things were selling for some money. They were, they were up there, you know, priced with the Colt Gold Cup and a few other things. So you plunk your money down for this and get a pistol without a magazine and kind of a little IOU saying, when we get them, you'll get them. I don't think that made anybody happy. So that was a problem. The other thing was nobody produced. If it, if it were out today, you would have aftermarket people producing all kinds of stuff. But the aftermarket industry was just, it was really nascent back then. And it did not have the kind of capacity that we see now where somebody would say, yeah, I've got machines, I'll crank those out. Just wasn't happening. So that was a problem. The other problem was it, was, it really did have too much recoil. The pistol had too much size. It was a step in the opposite direction where carryable firearms were going. And that is smaller, better capacity, lighter recoil, lighter weight. All That's the direction that concealable firearms had been going in and, and definitely continue to go through this to this day. You know, the, the Hellcat and the, the 360, you know, Sig Sauer 360 and the Springfield Hellcat, all these, all these very small guns for powerful cartridges, but they don't they don't really step over the line with something like a 10 millimeter which you know has become kind of a little niche cartridge you know um it's it's a not saying the Bren 10 was a bad gun it was a very cool gun and probably would sell today in that 10 millimeter niche but there's a few other things already in there i think cz or tz somebody's got somebody's got a few in there you can get some 1911s in in uh, 10 millimeter um so there are a lot of guns out there in 10 millimeter. Smith and Wesson revolver is very cool. I've got a friend who's got one, and he's uh, he thinks it's one of the best revolvers going. And and uh, you know, with full moon clips and all that, it's it's pretty cool. It is very cool, but it's never going to have a giant market share. So for neither the cartridge nor the gun itself, the Bren 10 definitely makes the list. Okay, and number five on the list, in again, no specific order, is the 1916 Fedorov Automat, which a lot of people call the first assault rifle. Of 
course, they call the Winchester 1907 the first assault rifle, the M1 carbine the first assault rifle. So it's one of about, oh, maybe half a dozen first assault rifles. <laughs> so there you go. Um, you know, it was a, a very cool gun. It was select fire. It was done for a lower-powered service cartridge, which a lot of people mistakenly say, well, it was kind of like, it was basically an intermediate cartridge. No, 6.5 Japanese was not an intermediate cartridge. It was on the lower end, though, of the full-size service cartridges. And uh, it was a very effective and a very good rifle. And, of course, um, you know, it did have its drawbacks. It was complicated. Uh, it was somewhat frail. I mean, it was never going to be a, a war-winning weapon. But it potentially could have been developed into something a little better. But... The Russian Revolution, you know, a few thousand of them were made, what, four or five thousand, and it never really, uh, never really went beyond that. The uh, Russian Revolution derailed, you know, the project, but enough of them were kept on hand that the Finns captured some during the uh, Winter War in 1939, so they obviously were around and still got used, and, uh, you know, had the history been different, what if Russia... What if there had been no revolution? And what if Russia had stayed in the war? What if they'd been able to produce enough of these to make um, and create maybe some storm troops of their own to fight the Austrians and the Germans? World War I might have been a very, very kind of different battle, especially on the Eastern Front. Might have looked very, very different uh, had a rifle like that uh, been successfully employed. You know, So it's, it's, uh, while it was a really a great idea, and it certainly proved the concept. Uh, it didn't. It didn't. Due to political conditions, uh, it was not developed further into what could have been a very influential uh, weapon. So that's our that's our five. Just to recap: M14, Lamat revolver, Pedersen device, Bren 10 pistol, and Fedorov automat. So those are the uh, those are the ones. There are a couple of really good runner-ups. Uh, I would say what the biggest runner-up I can think of would be the SKS. You know, kind of that, you know, gap filler that the Soviets had from end of World War II till the AK was was uh, uh, straightened out and put in production. You know, it's got uh, some very admirable characteristics as far as reliability and dependability and even shootability go. It's got some real debits as far as capacity. Uh, size and the ability to reload it quickly um, so it's you know it was a good weapon and I I certainly enjoy shooting it I think it's I think they're very cool don't really care for the looks but I really like the way they shoot um, you know they feel like a rifle traditional stock feels like a rifle but it really didn't influence anything else it just uh, Soviets produced it had a bunch of their satellite countries produce it and then it kind of went into you know, background storage and given to third world countries. So the SKS would definitely be a uh, honorable mention on the list. Okay, another honorable mention is the Makarov pistol. Although I like the Makarov pistol, you know, it's low capacity, uh, kind of a, a mid-sized pistol, can be concealed pretty, pretty well, but also worn as a duty automatic, which is a good thing. But the heel, the heel uh, magazine release, uh, just it just has some features that nobody really values anymore. So uh, the low capacity for its weight, weight and size, and the heel magazine release, it just essentially um, it hasn't really developed anything else, and everything else that uh, that has come after it has been different and uh, vastly improved. So the the Makarov would definitely get on the list as an honorable mention. Okay, another uh, another honorable mention would be going. You got to go back a few years, but there was a gun called the Ithaca Mag 10 Road Blocker, and uh, as you can imagine, it was a 10 gauge Magnum shotgun that was kind of set up tactically, and it was designed to give police uh, a heavy weapon uh, to use at roadblocks and and other applications where something much more powerful than a 12-gauge would be would be useful. And these guns at the time, I think they were in the, introduced in the mid-70s, 
and they were uh, they were very expensive for the time. Um, you could buy at the time you could buy an FN FAL from Belgium for nine hundred to a thousand dollars, and these were almost eight hundred dollars. And as a as a comparison, AR fifteen the SP ones were about were under three hundred dollars. So. It was a very, very expensive gun, over twice the cost of an SP-1 AR-15. And, uh, you know, the the two problems were, number one, it had, <laughs> understandably, some hellacious recoil, and it was a very limited application gun. And, in fact, was it really much more effective than a 12-gauge? And that was debatable. The other thing was it, it did not have a level of manufacture that justified the price or could really hold up under the uh, duty that uh, it was put under. You know, when you have aluminum uh, trigger guards and, and frame things on there, you know, that whole trigger mechanism, when that's all aluminum, um, you know, in the, in the unforgiving environment of getting banged around in arms rooms and in squad cars and in tactical vans and things, uh, that's, you know, that's just not going to hold up. Uh, same thing, it, it, and it had uh, some conventional wood on it. Um, you know, the stock was a con conventional design and everything, so it was not really it was not really suited. It looked more like a sporting gun that had been, you know, just on the surface very superficially um, given this uh, tactical makeover, and that's what it was. And although it was cool, and people wanted it and, and uh, thought it. You know, it's kind of like 44 Magnum, that cachet of this is the biggest and best. Uh, it, it really was uh, ill-suited for law enforcement or any kind of tactical applications. And in fact, I don't think we've seen a tactical 10-gauge shotgun since. I mean, everything has gone to to 12-gauge, and if you need more power, you go to 3-inch Magnums or 3.5-inch Magnums. So the shotgun power trend has gone to stretching the 12 gauge and not increasing the gauge the size of the board to 10 gauge so the mag 10 roadblocker would definitely be on the list okay another uh, another runner-up is the uh, straight pull swiss rifles or romanian rifles it doesn't matter any straight pull manually operated rifle um you know, essentially, they were supposed to be, they, they kind of were formulated in the days before anything semi-automatic was practical as a way to be a faster, a better mousetrap, faster than a regular bolt action, which, you know, had to have the bolt turned and then pulled back and then pushed forward and then turned back down again. This would just be you pull back and push forward, and it would be a superior system, um, and it was not, you know, everybody kind of tested it, and it, it really was not so uh, it turned out some very cool rifles and the Swiss rifles are very very nice and a lot of fun to shoot but they're not significantly better than a a bolt-action rifle for military purposes and really that kind of that's kind of died out I don't think I think maybe blazer or somebody you know sporting rifles and I think even blazer has got some tactical rifles completely high-end you know Five thousand, you know, if you want to buy a five thousand dollar three hundred eight Winchester tactical rifle, I guess that's the place you go. But outside of that, they've really not proliferated. You don't see them. Uh, they're great historical items, great collectibles, a lot of fun to shoot. And you know, at least with the Swiss rifles, and I'm sure the Hungarian ones are pretty much the same. Uh, they're they're a lot of fun, and they're very accurate, very good to shoot. But they just did not influence military rifle design. They were, they were more of just kind of the exception rather than the rule, and uh, kind of out on the edge and, and not in the mainstream at all. I think the only other honorable mention we have for this is the uh, Winchester 1905, 1907, and 1910. You know, the, they were semi-automatic basically delayed blowback because it had a giant counterweight underneath the uh, handguard. And uh, I don't think anybody ever came up with that system ever again. You know, while they work, they do have kind of a sharp recoil. And uh, the guns are very heavy for their size because of that counterweight 
that, that basically keeps the breach closed until the, uh, you know, the pressure is right to push it back and then a spring pushes it forward again. So, you know, it's a very, very uh, um, simple system, but it's one that, you know, you could not use for any other kind of cartridges, and uh, it, it, we haven't seen it since. Haven't seen it since. And uh, so they were significant. There were a lot of them around, used in World War One in various capacities. But uh, when they closed down the production line in the 1950s, haven't seen anything like it since. Significant did not impact uh, firearms design, except maybe to tell them that, that their other designs were better. Maybe that was the impact it had. But anyway, it did not directly influence firearm technology. Okay, here is our next question. Would you buy a Indrange TV slash Brownells What Would Stoner Do rifle for any purpose? And the answer is no. Um, I would not buy it because I don't really want to buy a plastic AR that's only good for gun games. I mean, and that's that's really what it is. Uh, it's, it's a gun that has been optimized for to be as lightweight as possible, to be as nimble as possible for shooting games. Uh, just by looking at it, and, and I mean, they've put a couple things up up on it. I'm not talking about the original one, but the one they, they're doing now. And frankly, it doesn't look like it has the durability to interest me. And if it doesn't have durability, it's not going to have long-term reliability. Um, just looking at the handguards alone, I can't imagine those things getting banged around in any kind of law enforcement or tactical use or military use. Just can't see it. Um, can't see the having optics only and no backup sights. Can't see the polymer, you know, which is the nice word for plastic, lower. And, and they've, they've, they're claiming they've done all kinds of engineering and all kinds of high-speed stuff on this. And that may be true, but it's still plastic. And so, uh, it's just not, not really what I'm interested in. You know, it's going to be a fad thing. It's going to be the, they're trying to make it the new hotness. And people who shoot in three gun might find, find it to be advantageous. But I think what's going to happen is it'll be like all the new hotness. Two years from now, it'll be sitting in the back of a closet or a gun safe. And it will represent a lot of money that was put towards something which is no longer state of the art. So it will no longer be, you know, tremendously useful to its owner. Uh, the other thing is it, it's also kind of this juxtaposition of they're making this rifle as light as possible. And some of the people using it are the ones who want to, you know, play soldier and get in all the combat gear of, you know, the plate carriers and the, uh, the, the advanced combat helmets and all the rest of this. So they're making their rifle lighter, potentially at the cost of durability and reliability, so that they can wear all this other extraneous shit that they don't need <laughs> during a during a match. Now I realize they, they got classes a class in the match where you wear this stuff, but really, you know, they could eliminate the plates and the plate carrier, and you'd save tons of weight. Um, and if you're gonna wear all that stuff. If you're determined to wear all that stuff, you know, an extra pound or two on the rifle does not make a difference. It just doesn't. I mean, you reach that threshold where, hey, you can you can have the rifle weigh seven or eight pounds instead of five pounds, and it doesn't make a difference. You're just, you're still going to be kind of clumsy and feel like, you know, you're wearing half a, half a, you know, wearing an armored suit because that's what you're doing. And uh, so I don't think the gun will be particular. It's an interesting, like I said, is it an interesting exercise of taking everything you can as lightweight as possible, putting it into an AR-style rifle and seeing if it'll still work? Well, it might. You know, that might be an interesting thing. Um, I th think they kind of already did that the first time. And, you know, it basically worked. Now, if you were, you got to think what kind of, what kind of application would it be good for outside of gaming? And the only possible thing I can think of would be if you're in an environment where you're saving every pound on your gear because 
it's in a light aircraft or there's some other constraint which constrains the amount of of weight that you can have but you still need something capable of the attributes of an AR-15 then you know you might have a case for something like that uh, you know I think it would be rare and it would be an extremely small niche but perhaps something like that does exist or the only other thing I can think of is maybe a shooter who is a very very small stature somebody who say five feet five feet two maybe even five foot four would find it to be an easier gun to manipulate and shoot simply because you know the lighter weight makes it makes it better for them and more convenient to use those are the only possible things I can think of that would um, that would really talk about it and I haven't looked I guess you can pre-order meaning you know click yes on Brownells and pre-order one of these things I don't know what they're charging for it but I'm willing to wager that it's going to be very expensive and you know the fact of the matter is the guys making the lower buttstock thing they're just kind of one of those little boutique manufacturers and, and frankly I'm not too impressed I mean I'm just not that impressed so no I would not buy one for for any purpose that I could possibly think of you know unless I needed to arm at least unless I needed to arm my paraglider or something I can't think of anything I would uh, I would use that for okay next question Ooh, and this is I'm a terrible person to ask for this so just understand that straight up front what guns would you take if you were on the TV show alone and uh, I'm not very familiar with alone I've seen a couple of the episodes but um, my understanding is they take people and they drop them off in remote locations with a, a modicum of stuff you know um, they got basically a ruck, big rucksack filled with stuff and they have some camera equipment and they they set up and live primitively for as long as they can so if if guns were allowed and I was in that kind of situation what would I take and as far as I know no firearms are allowed I think I've seen people with bows but that's about it but in in a uh, in a manly version of that where you can have firearms what would I take and I think the answer really is I would wait until I see I see where I'm going but if I'm going up into northern climes where there's going to be dangerous bears and things like you know mountain lions and and perhaps you know critters that could be physically dangerous to me I, I would take and this is this may sound like a strange thing but I would take an original configuration M14 and the reason I would say that is if, if there's really if there really are grizzlies up there and maybe moose and caribou and polar bears who knows I really want a weapon that has got a high capacity and that has good follow-up shots and I want something a little more dependable than a sporting rifle so I would I would take an M14 in the troopy converse not the the thick stocked you know match versions or anything um, but in the original configuration with an original GI walnut stock or I would even go you know they did have the uh, fiberglass stocks for M14s I'd take that too the original sites you know the, the same sites that are effectively on the Garand and you would have a great rifle and you know as long as you're shooting 150 grain um, hunting ammo in there uh, they're, they're reasonably reliable I mean it's you can have FMJ too but but um, you know it's going to be able to shoot that stuff and be pretty good and you know the nice part about a Garand system rifle is it kind of works as a straight pull bolt if you if it for some reason is not working you know the actions right there they're easy to clear uh, it's good really good rifle so I would I would probably have one of those if I could have a rifle and a shotgun type deal I would take a single barrel shotgun you know I think that would be that would be fine for something like that something lightweight uh, you know because you're just gonna be kind of you know shooting birds on the ground you're not gonna be out there you know international trap shooting champion type things 
just a game getter, which is just a a a modestly a modest shotgun like that is fine. And the reason I say that is when I was a kid bird hunting, I used a single shot 410. So I would probably want something bigger than a 410, maybe a single shot 20 gauge, or a single shot 12 gauge, it doesn't matter. Uh, what I would really like in that situation would be one of the old Savage, and I think even um, the Russians made some for a while, the old kind of combination guns where you could get a rifle caliber on top and a shotgun barrel right beneath it. It was kind of like an over and under. And uh, I think the uh, the two configurations, well, I think they made several configurations. One I remember was 30-30 on the top and uh, 12 gauge on the bottom. Or you could get 223. They didn't call it 556 in those days. You could get 223 on top and a 20 gauge on the bottom, or a 22 Magnum or 22 long rifle and either a 410 or 20 gauge. Uh, they made, you know, over the years they made different combinations of those things. So one of those would be pretty nice too, especially if I couldn't have the other thing. If I could only have one long arm, I'd, I'd probably have to opt for one of those. And if I ran into a bear and I had a 30-30 and a 12-gauge slug, is it optimal? No, but is it something I could use? Well, I guess so. So that would be, those would be the kind of guns I would take. Um, if I could not take any military pattern guns, could not take the M14, what would I take? Uh, the answer is very simple. I would take a Remington Model 700 ADL with a inexpensive but reasonable reasonably good quality scope and the reason I say that is I've got one sitting in my my gun safe um, it's an older gun was kind of passed to me um, and it's got a two to seven loophole scope on it an older scope I mean they, they haven't made that scope in probably probably 40 years or longer um, but it's a blind magazine you know just a very very pedestrian gun in uh, and it's in 308 so it would be it'd be really good and it's, and it's pretty lightweight that's a nice part about it uh, for handguns it would depend on what else I was carrying for a long gun I if I had the combination gun in 22 or 22 magnum I probably would not go for a 22 pistol I'd probably go for something you know the old, the old 38 um, you know like a Ruger Blackhawk in 357 would be great carry 38s around you know you can get small game with it you know that kind of thing if it had to be a 22 pistol i would not just any any 22 would really be fine i probably would prefer a revolver maybe a ruger wrangler um they're modestly priced seem to be good quality just kind of figure out where the fixed sights shoot and, and go with that so those would be the things i would take but again i'm the worst person in the world to ask about that i'm you know to me I, i've seen a few episodes of that show and the people on it are kind of those those strange survival people groovy granola that that combination of groovy groovy granola and bushcraft that you know frankly kind of turns me off you know the kind of people who shoot a squirrel and then pray over its spirit you know before they eat it and i you know i just i don't know that that all just that's all weird to me so all those survival shows are a little bit weird to me and uh, that's just kind of the way that is. So, but I do what I do like about them is in a very very cruel way. You know, you watch them. The people at the very beginning are these hard. They they act like they're all hardcore. Like I'm gonna really beat this. I've got the skills and all that. Then they get about halfway through whatever the the situation is, and then they're like, "Man, this sucks. I didn't think it would be this hard." And blah blah blah. blah. I miss my favorite is I miss my family. Why they didn't think of that up front, I don't know. But then they, you know, usually wind up quitting for one reason or another. So, there you go. That's uh, that's what I would do on that. Alright, here's another question. What is the most overlooked aspect in hand-loading? And I will say, I can, I can definitely say this, for, for rifle ammunition especially... It is case inspection, case sizing, and case trimming. If you do not have really good knowledge and cannot do those things very, very well, you will have crappy hand-loaded ammunition. And um, 
when it comes to case inspection, it's like looking for, you know, the obviously super bad dents, case splits, or other things that are that are going to be in there and very very bad. The next thing is the uh, uh, sizing, and for you know most for any kind of semi-automatic, you really have to get the small base die, which makes sizing a an adventure because um, it does not always um, go in easy no matter how much of the good lubricant and all that you use uh, a lot of these cases have been shot in rifles with very generous chambers and when you're putting them into the small base die which reduces them finer than a regular die would uh, it can sometimes be a challenge to do that and then the final thing is trimming um, you can have some very bad things happen if you don't trim cases, uh, especially in semi-automatics, because uh, you might get a premature detonation because it's not quite locked. And this doesn't, not so much a problem with ARs, but it can happen with, with other systems. It's not quite locked in, but the hammer will release to hit the firing pin. So your gun's not completely locked and fires. That's, sometimes they call it an out-of-battery firing as a generic term to cover that and a few other things. So those three things with uh, rifle ammunition are a big deal. Pistol ammunition is a lot more forgiving because straight walled cartridges usually don't grow. They expand out but they usually don't grow in length because they don't have that bottleneck um, that's pushing against, you know, all the pressures pushing against that bottleneck and forcing that, forcing the neck of the cartridge to kind of elongate. So, um, the, the long, the straight-walled cases are usually a lot more forgiving, and then you're just looking for splits and things. The, the other cool part is, especially when you're talking about 38-watt cutter-style loads, or low-pressure 45 ACP, you know, the lead bullet target loads, that, that a lot of people um, hand-load, you know, even if you have a case split, it's just not a big deal. It's just you see the case and you can never use it again, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. But I would, uh, I would say that the case, the cartridge case, is the, uh, the key component. And being able to, to work it so that it, it is, you know, the type of, it, it can reflect the type of quality that you need in your hand-loaded ammunition. Consistency and quality. So I would say that that is the most overlooked step. Case, preparation and manipulation. Okay, here's our next question. Have you seen the Mossberg Dark series of lever action rifles and what do you think of them? Okay, that's that's a pretty open question, but uh, I have not seen the rifles in person. I've not had a chance to touch them. But it doesn't really matter. I've touched other other Marlins and these are very similar in many ways. The differences are these rifles are all finished in black, the wood and the, uh, um, you know, the metal is like black oxide, and they're fitted with a rail, and they have, uh, they don't have the traditional lever action band at the end and, and sight. It's kind of a, you know, the the magazine tube, just comes out, and the and they've basically been shortened, I believe, to about 16 inches. So it's not. You know, it's not uh, a traditional-looking lever-action rifle at all. And I think they have the big loop levers, which, yeah, I, I'm not enough of an expert to think that a big loop lever would help me, but maybe they help some people. But they look cool. Um, you know, now they're, the advertising kind of touts these from Marlin as kind of big game rifles, kind of a modern game hunting rifle. I... I say that I think that while they may be saying that, this is clearly a product intended to the home defense market in states where AR-15s and other things are legislatively uh, unobtainable. So I think if you're in California or Massachusetts or some other place, uh, you buy this under the guise of a hunting rifle. But it's equipped with a rail so you can put on any of the modern tactical sights. You could put an EOTech or an Aimpoint or anything else on it. And uh, it, it won't look 
like some super dorky thing, you know. I mean, it, it'll, it'll probably fit because of the finish of the rifle and everything else. It's not like the, um, it's not like that Mossberg copy of the Winchester 94 that's got the, <laughs> it's got the M4 adjustable stock. It doesn't have anything like that, but it does have the rail on the top. It's like black oxide finished, and I'm sure the wood is painted some sort of black resin. So, you know, but it is, it is clearly intended to be a tactical rifle that you can have in restrictive locations. If you live in, you know, occupied America, that's, that's what it is. So, um, you know, and it's probably a good choice, and they come in, uh, it's done on their, their two larger platforms, the 336 for 3030, and I believe it's the, uh, is it the 1895 for uh, 4570? You know, hey, 4570 tactical rifle's pretty cool, but then again, so is 3030. If I had to choose one, um, again, unless I lived somewhere where there's big dangerous animals, I'd probably go with a 3030. I think that would be a great defensive cartridge and uh, something that, you know, you could definitely put together a very cool gun. Something also, it would also be very cool for like hog hunting and other places where you need a really, where you need a really, really, you know, nimble kind of a rifle. So that would be the, uh, that would be the case. Okay, here is our last question of the podcast. Do bayonets have any practical value on tactical rifles today, either for the police, military, or private citizens? Everybody will tell you essentially no. Everybody will say no, but everybody who says that is incorrect. A bayonet has utility on rifles simply because it's pointy, it's cold steel, and it's not something that anybody can grab. If somebody comes up and grabs the blade of a bayonet and you twist it, <laughs> you twist the rifle, <laughs> you're going to open up their hands. So people naturally avoid things that are pointy and can stick them and hurt them. So I, you know, I don't think it is. Now, do you want the visual of you being photographed out there with a bayonet on your rifle, you know, fighting people off? Well, I don't know, but, you know, as a last resort, you know, the bayonet has always been a psychological, a weapon with a lot of psychological value. And that is, um, you know, most people don't understand being shot. They just, that's kind of a theoretical to them. But almost everybody has been stuck or poked on, on some level by something sharp. So when they see a bayonet, they immediately know from first-hand experience that that's going to be very unpleasant, it's going to hurt, and they can only imagine what that would be like in their midriff. So that's one of the reasons that uh, um, when MPs are on riot duty and things like that, they, they fix their bayonets, and you know it's, it's done to intimidate the crowd. It's done to keep, keep people back. So, and that's, that's around the world. You, know, you'll, you see a lot of fixed bayonets um, in civil disturbances and everything else. So, you know, it does have a, a practical value. I don't know, for, the, for an armed citizen, I don't know that its value is nearly as great as it is for a military organization. And I would say that I don't think any police organization could get away with it. So for the police, no. For military police, yes. For a military organization, yes, definitely. And for a private citizen, uh, there could be a situation where a bayonet could come in handy uh, merely as an intimidation tool. So they do have some value. Now, the things that I find are valueless are, <laughs> and this is a few years ago. This was just before the zombie craze. Remember the, the pistol bayonets that, you know, when pistols started coming out with that little bit of a rail underneath the, uh, the barrel, you know, so you could attach a flashlight or something. A laser or a flashlight or some some other deal on there, and and a lot of pistols still have that now. Somebody came out with a bayonet that you could put on there. Um, you know, I just don't see the value of that. That's probably something that you could hurt yourself with more than you could hurt anybody else. And the other fact of the matter is, um, if you've got a bayonet on your pistol, you're not going to be holstering it because I don't know that anybody had a combination 
uh, bayonet scabbard pistol holder, uh, pistol holster, I should say. I don't know that that was ever uh, something that anybody ever had uh, uh, marketed or even even uh, had a prototype of. So, yeah, pistol bayonets are a no-go. Rifle bayonets for the right kind of organization and the right kind of uh, situation, they're still a definite tool today. Well, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. This was episode number 74. Remember, you can always leave a comment for me on Podbean. And uh, I will definitely, uh, if you've got a question or a comment, I will address it. And uh, you can also email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.